Come on. Quick ask before we get started today, I am working to help people lead happier and more contented lives. My part of that is money. So if you enjoyed today's episode or if you've enjoyed past episodes, please take a minute and leave a quick review on iTunes. Subscribe. That helps uh, the show climb up the rankings and helps more people uh, find it. So thanks a lot. David Catorno is the founder of ePowered Benefits. He is a 20-year veteran of employee benefits. He is a speaker, contributor, a thought leader, and now finally a guest on Money Savage Maximize. Welcome, David. Thank you. And this is George Grumbacher, and it is time to go. David, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Well, my personal life, uh, start off there. I have two wonderful children, a 10-year-old daughter named Hannah and an 8-year-old son named Ethan. They are absolute star of my life. Nice. Um, and, uh, and I'm very grateful for them and who they are today. Um, a little bit about me professionally. Um, you know, our, most people would consider me to be a health insurance broker, and you'll hear throughout this conversation how I don't fit those traditional roles, but I did for a very long period of time. And I'm currently 42 years old, and uh, believe it or not, I often joke when I speak in the industry, I said, you know, I've been doing this since I was 17 years old, and I knew a day was going to come when I wasn't the youngest guy in the room at these conferences anymore. <laughs> I'm happy to announce that day has not yet arrived. Um <laughs> Because uh, it seems like the industry just gets older uh, around me. It's not the sexiest industry, or at least it hasn't been. But I really think that that's changing. And so for the first 17 or 18 years of my career, I was a traditional health insurance broker. And what that meant is I worked with employers to bring the products of the Blue Crosses and the Uniteds and the Cygnas and the Aetnas and the smaller carriers to them and their employees. And I obviously would help negotiate the price of insurance. I use my air quotes, as you'll hear throughout this conversation, why that's so important, um, to negotiate the cost of insurance and to help manage and uh, support the plans, um, you know, the entire benefit package, but the health insurance was always the biggest piece of that. And for the first 17 or 18 years of my career for that same time period, it was it was a rinse and repeat scenario. There was not a single employer client that looked forward to meeting me because they knew that I was coming in with varying degrees of bad news. <laughs> um, but what started to get really hard for me and what really changed my path seven, six or seven years ago was a few weeks after the employer would make a decision based on what I presented to them, I would then have to go share the ramifications of that decision with their employees. And what started happening was I'm coming into these employees, many of whom are the average working American that have a household income between two working people of 50, 60 or 70,000. And I'm coming in with ever increasing money coming out of their paycheck. But what was even worse and got even harder was as the out of pockets in the United States have increased the co-pays, the deductibles, the co-insurance, the things that apply to those things before there's any coverage started to grow and grow and grow. And today we have a situation where the average person has a $5,000 out of pocket exposure before their health plan picks up 100%. And yet the average American has under $800 in their savings account. And that speaks to another statistic that really weighs on me, which is the number one cause of bankruptcy in the US is medical bills. 
but almost three quarters of the people that file for bankruptcy because of medical bills had health insurance. So it's not the medical bills themselves that are bankrupting them, it's the, their share of the cost that the employer's health plan is saddling them with that is causing the bankruptcy in most cases. And that's what that's really painful because if you think of insurance, all insurance, every type of insurance that you buy, its primary purpose is to protect against financial loss. Life insurance, car insurance, homeowners insurance, I mean on and on and on. But if health insurance is not only so expensive that it's causing financial pain just to have it, but then we go into bankruptcy when we use it, what the heck are we not only paying for, but why is it so difficult for me to get people to uncouple that, for me to get them to fire Blue Cross and Blue Shield and United and Cigna and put in a proper health plan that actually works for them? Why is that so hard? Um, I think it's because people confuse the words healthcare and health insurance in the US, but they don't confuse life and life insurance or homes and homeowners insurance or cars and car insurance. Those are two very distinct things, but in healthcare, they get very conflagrated in our minds. That is a, those are some pretty alarming, bothersome statistics right there that healthcare is the number one cause of bankruptcy but three quarters of those people have health insurance. So yeah, decoupling the idea of how we pay for health care versus what health insurance really is. I I, I think that's such an important thing. Do you think that that we're moving towards the direction of of changing that or is that just so baked in? Well, um, I mean, I remember saying, 15 years ago, when the family premiums reach $1,000, that'll that'll be the pain point that mm. just isn't tolerable anymore. And today we're sitting at well north of $2,000 average. Um, but I think there's a few things occurring now that's different than 10 or 20 years ago. First of all, the dollars are bigger and it's getting even, even more painful. And I really think we're finally reaching the breaking point. But what I think is even more important around that is that um, there are organizations, many of which I oftentimes donate my time and energy and effort to, that are spreading how to do it properly uh, with aligned interests. See, the whole problem within our healthcare system today is one of incentives. Um, People call our healthcare system broken. It's not broken. It's working really, really, really well, just not for employers, doctors, or patients. (laughs) But it's working for some people really, really well, like hospital administrators, healthcare executives, health insurance executives, stockholders of the insurance companies. All of those entities are doing really, really well. Pharmacy benefit managers, drug manufacturers, medical device manufacturers. I mean, healthcare is the largest sector of our economy. It's 20% of our GDP. It's the largest employer in the United States. We it, Healthcare overtook the federal government for employment last year. Uh, so it's massive and it's working for many people, just just not patients, doctors or employers who foot the bill. And I say doctors, just FYI, doctors are really beat down in the system because um, of the way that they're paid. And the way that doctors are paid are, are based on quantity of care. Oftentimes they're incentivized to do unnecessary tests and procedures, which often lead to unnecessary surgeries. Um, and that, and then 40% of their time is just filling out forms to get paid. And that's not what they went to medical school for. And the result of that, two interesting statistics about doctors, doctors are the number one suicide rate of any profession in the U S and they're also the highest drug addiction rate of any profession in the United States. So they're pretty miserable right now too. Wow. 
You are bringing some awful statistics to us this morning, David. <laughs> it's just the truth. Oh, oh my God. And I shouldn't, it's nothing to laugh at. Those are all, that's, all right. And that healthcare overtook the federal government as the number one employer is, 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 is pretty astonishing right there. All right. So what's, what's the way forward? Well, I think there's a few. So a lot of people in the industry call me innovative because of what we do. And, and I call you know, horse poo poo on that because <laughs> all that I'm really doing is trying to get what people apply when they literally buy everything else that they buy to healthcare. Think about it for a second. Imagine if you went to a brand new restaurant, okay? So it's opening night, there's no reviews, there's nobody to ask how good the food is. And when you sit down at the table, there's no, and you open the menu up, there's no prices. And so the server comes over and you say to the server, excuse me, but what's good here and what's the cost? And the server says, oh, don't worry, you'll find out the quality after you eat it and you'll get the cost when you get the bill. Mm. What would you like? <laughs> would you order that? I would not. No, most people wouldn't. But isn't that how we consume healthcare every single day? When you go into the hospital for, I don't know, a hernia surgery, do you know if that hospital just killed the last patient they did a hernia surgery on because nope. they acquired a, a hospital-born bacteria, a flesh-eating bacteria, or they accidentally uh, did an inguinal hernia on the left side of the groin when it was really the right side that needed to be done? And do you know that all of those things result in the hospital making more money, not less? The average complication for an inpatient hospital stay results in $10,000 of additional profit for that hospital. So one of the perverse incentives, many of which there are many, um, is that hospitals make more money the lower quality care that they provide, generally speaking. There are some exceptions to that. So for any hospital administrators that might be listening, yes, it's true, you guys deal with DRGs and some Medicare scores, but the reality is is that in most cases, they make more money when uh, mistakes are made. And that's why so many mistakes get made. I don't think any doctor or hospital sets out to make a mistake intentionally. It's thousands of little decisions over the course of years that have created this. And the one other thing that I want to state that uh, is starting to become more aware, when I tell people we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world, I don't get a lot of pushback, although very few people understand the extent to which we're the most expensive. But where I do get a lot of pushback is when I tell them the quality of our healthcare system. A lot of Americans are under the extremely false notion that we have a good quality healthcare system. As a matter of fact, some people think we have one of the best in the world. And it's actually quite the opposite. There's actually not a single industrialized nation that has a lower ranked healthcare system than ours. We have the lowest for outcomes, for quality, the lowest ranked healthcare system in the industrialized world. There are even some third world or, uh, countries that have better outcomes in their healthcare system than we do here. Um, about There was a Johns Hopkins study and there's no one really tracks this, so there's not there's a little bit of debate over this number. But the estimate is that between four and six hundred thousand people die each year from preventable medical errors. It's the third leading cause of death in the United States behind heart disease and cancer. And I, you know, there's been a couple of mass shootings lately, and those are horrible tragedies. Please, I, I they're horrible. There is just no excuse for them. But more people die from our health care system preventably every single day than die every year in shootings. Or when those planes crash, those 737 maxes outside of the country, two planes crash, 300 people died. Again, a horrible tragedy. 
but we ground instantly all the planes. Well, more people die from that, from the opioid epidemic every day, which by the way, was largely almost always started with a legitimate prescription taken as the doctor ordered and paid for by that person's health insurance plan. That's how the average opioid addict starts. So our healthcare system is just dishing out not only clinical damage, but the financial ramifications of that are just oppressive. And I really believe that a lot of the divisiveness in our country, especially in the political arena, is ultimately rooted in healthcare because it's impacting people's paychecks, their taxes, what comes out of their paycheck, what comes out of their pocket. Um, and I think it's putting a lot of fear and pressure, but because it's so massive, people don't understand where it's actually coming from. And I believe that if we fixed healthcare, a lot of that pressure would go away. Yeah, I mean, if you talk about a family spending $12,000 a year or 18000 or $24,000 a year on their health insurance, just the insurance premiums alone potentially, and if the average income, household income is $60,000, well, that's obviously, that's not leaving a lot of room for, for anything and obviously is, is going to be a cause of stress and when something goes wrong, well, then that leads to bankruptcy and everything else and which leads to opioid epidemics and pills and, and oh my gosh. Um, all right, so there's a lot of a lot of really important stuff there to unpack. How do we how do we as consumers of of healthcare start to advocate for more transparency in how much stuff costs? And is yeah. that a good starting point? Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you think of both cost and quality uh, information for a minute as a commodity. Um, you have both a supply side issue, right? Doctors and hospitals don't put this data out there. And then you have a demand issue. Patients are not demanding it before going in. And I think we need to work on both sides of the equation. Um, if patients went to a hospital and before, a, you know, a, a planned surgical procedure, not an emergency, but a planned surgical procedure, and they said to the hospital, can you tell me how many of these you did last year, what your complication and infection rates were and, and what your mortality rate was? And that hospital said, oh, we don't know. And believe me, that's the answer you're gonna get because I have a video online where I did this for my own hernia surgery. Um, if that patient said, okay, well, I'm not coming to, I'm not gonna be a customer of yours. I'm not gonna allow money to be spent, whether out of my pocket or on my behalf at your facility if you can't tell me that. Just like you'd walk out of a restaurant that didn't give you a price beforehand and not buy it. If patients started to do that and nobody was going to the hospitals that didn't, those hospitals would be forced to change or they'd go out of business, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like adapt or die at that point, but nobody's putting the pressure on them to adapt. There are some hospitals out there like Surgery Center of Oklahoma, which was started by a good friend of mine, Dr. Keith Smith. If you go to surgerycenterofok.com, not only is cost and quality on their website, it's on the home page, front and center, all in bundled price, frequency data, quality metrics. That's what we need. That's the model. And what's really interesting financial dynamic, there's a lot of principles in healthcare that we've come to believe are true that are backwards in healthcare. And one of them is that cost and quality are inversely related to each other in healthcare. And what sits between the two is frequency. If a doctor and a hospital do a very particular procedure 
a thousand times a year versus another doctor and facility that does it 10 times a year, the ones that do it a thousand times a year are going to do it better and more efficiently. I mean, it's really easy. I use example of a hysterectomy where um, the average woman goes to their OBGYN for their hysterectomy. Well, there's 550,000 hysterectomies done each year and there's 58,000 OBGYNs. That means that the average OBGYN does eight or nine hysterectomies a year. Now, let me ask you, if LeBron James practiced eight or nine times a year, do you think he'd be as good of a basketball player as he is? Not so much. No, he practices eight or nine times a week, right? Maybe more. So what? listen to how backwards this is. That, that average OBGYN who only does eight or nine, because they do so few, um, they tend to do them open because laparoscopic requires more training and skill. So they gravitate towards doing it open, but guess what? Open is also a higher reimbursement rate to the doctor. So they make more money hmm. when they do it open. But open is really bad for the patient, for the woman. It requires a much larger incision, much higher infection rates, more time in the hospital, more pain medication. So, and the average hysterectomy is around $38,000 a year. We have, um, through a, a doctor in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Rick Rosenfield, we have access to a network of precision gynecological surgeons that do three or 400 hysterectomies a year with a 90 plus percent laparoscopic rate. And we have a prearranged bundled price of $11,000. So it's done laparoscopically. The patient takes ibuprofen, they're back to work in two days. And the, the way we set up our health plan, so part of the problem with healthcare is the consumer which is the patient, and the payer, which is their health plan or really their employer, are separate. And that's really where the fundamental problem lies, is we're spending, right. or at least for a long time we thought we were spending someone else's money, even though it's really ours ultimately. And so we bring those two back together by doing the following. We don't use any carriers, all of them, uh, most people don't understand this, but health insurance companies make more money as healthcare costs go up. Most people think the opposite. They think if United Healthcare collects a billion dollars in premium because they anticipated 800 million of underlying healthcare costs and the $200 million delta was their, their overhead and their profit, and if they wind up containing costs to 500 million, people think that United Healthcare keeps the difference and makes more money. Therefore, United Healthcare, they think, is incentivized to keep costs down. So if the if a two hundred billion dollar company like United Healthcare, if the best they can do is eight, nine, ten percent a year, then that must just be the best they can do. What they don't realize is that there's a provision of the Affordable Care Act called medical loss ratios, and it says that every insurance company must spend eighty to eighty five cents of every dollar they collect on healthcare costs. So their margin is fifteen or twenty percent of premium, and premium is essentially one hundred and twenty five percent of claims. So the only way for them to deliver more shareholder value, more profit, which is what their legal obligation and requirement is as a publicly traded company, is to allow premium to increase. It's the only way profit can go up. And the only way to allow premium to increase is to allow underlying healthcare costs to go up. So the mistake that employers have been making all along, and half of the country gets their health insurance through their employer, is that They've been trusting their broker. Now, the average broker gets paid a commission, which means as the insurance rates go up, the broker makes more money. The health plan, the health insurance plan, as I just said, makes more money as costs go up. Of course, as costs go up, doctors and hospitals get paid more money. Drug companies get paid more money. 
The dirtiest of the dirty of the dirty is something called a pharmacy benefit manager, which every plan has. Express Scripts is the largest in the U.S. Here's how backwards that space is. All that Express Scripts does is conduct a transaction within the health plan. They don't make drugs. They don't pay for drugs. They don't deliver drugs. They don't research drugs. They literally conduct a transaction. Now, Express Scripts, all they do is conduct this transaction. And they're the 22nd largest company in the US. Wow. You don't get to the first drug maker until you reach 102, which is Johnson and Johnson. And of course, they make many, many other things besides just medications. Think about how backwards that is. And the analogy I use is imagine if there was a company out there and all they did was make airplane tires. So all they made was aircraft tires. But yet they did five times more revenue than the maker of the aircraft than Boeing. Hmm. You'd think something's wrong there, right? Yeah. Well, that's what's happening in healthcare. The pharmacy benefit manager that just conducts the transaction when we purchase a drug are, I don't, they are so taking advantage of America. They are fleecing America. They are doing strategies that are totally accepted and even legal within the healthcare space. But if I did them as a stockbroker or a lawyer, I'd go to jail. And I can give you many examples, but probably a little too detailed for this but that's where a lot of our issues are lying well that is a <clears throat> that is enlightening i was i was not aware of of all these issues that that we're facing i think that we could probably probably talk for hours and hours and hours about this but that idea about the how it's it's just not clear how much it costs and the transparency and how we demand transparency of so many other industries, if not every other industry except for except for healthcare. I think that seems like a really reasonable yep. starting point. But I mean, for the average the average person out there, they're probably nervous when they're having to use healthcare and that they probably feel like they only have a couple of options within their plan. Is it also a matter of demanding to the leadership at their organization that, and then lean on their their health insurance broker, which I use in in, in italics, to 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 do a, a better job and up their game? I mean, the way that we build health plans is for most brokers or consultants pretty scary because all they've done to build a health plan is literally take the the benefits and the rates the carrier give them and puts it onto an Excel spreadsheet and then says to the client, pick one. Mm. That's what the average broker does, okay? Right. And the worst job they do at managing healthcare costs, the more money they make because the more the premiums go up, the more the commission-based average broker makes as a result. So what's their incentive to do what I do, what my company does, what my team does, where we are negotiating, here's the problem. Remember I mentioned earlier I was the traditional broker and part of what I felt my role was to do was to negotiate health insurance rates for my clients, right? And I did, I did that aggressively. But think about how backwards that is. Imagine if you went and bought a car and your budget was $300, but the salesman was so good they get you into a $1,000 a month car payment. True. And when you get that car payment home, when you get that car home, it's really low quality. It's breaking down all the time. You're late for work. It's in the shop, yada, yada. So you need to do two things. Number one, you need to lower that monthly car payment. It's strangling you. And number two, you need to improve the quality of your car. Do you think an effective strategy of that would be to call up Geico and save 15% on your car insurance? Probably not. No. 
that's not going to impact your car payment, nor is that going to improve your commute the next day at all, right? So why do we think that beating up health insurance carriers or switching from United to Blue Cross to Cigna is going to lower our healthcare costs or improve the quality of healthcare that our employees consume? Right. It's not. It doesn't. And so there's only one way to pay less for healthcare. This is my stroke of genius for the day. You ready? I am. You have to pay less for healthcare. <laughs> And so what we do is, is we actually negotiate the cost of care based on access to data that we have. So we have access to every facility and every doctor's quality, cost, Medicare reimbursement rate, and what their average build rate is to insurance. And we use those to negotiate a price. And we're able to do things the carriers can't do. Like for example, with my hernia surgery that I mentioned earlier, I had it done at Surgery Center of Oklahoma. It was $3,060. Had I had it done at one of the local large hospitals that everyone think is good, but is actually one of the lowest quality in the area, after the wonderful Blue Cross and Blue Shield discount, it would have been $47,000 for that same surgery. Yeah. So we build a health plan that says to employees, there is no network of providers. The network is the problem. And when I say to people, you can go to any doctor you want, you don't have a network. They scratch their head, like I don't understand, how do I go to a healthcare provider without a network? And my response is, I can't think of anything else that you have a network for, so how do you buy those things? How do you buy your refrigerator or your TV or your car? You don't have a network, but you still buy it, right? You don't need a network. This concept that networks, all that networks do is provide a discount. Well, guess what? Everything at Kohl's is on sale except for one rack that nobody ever buys from, right? And yet, you know that even after the the sale and then the scratch-off coupon and the Kohl's cash, they're still making a profit because they just heavily inflated the starting price. And that's what the insurance carriers and the hospital systems in particular have colluded to do. So you get this EOB from Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and it says the starting price was 90,000 and we saved you 50%, so your plan is only responsible for 45,000 of which you pay 2,000, your plan pays the $43,000 difference. But really that should have cost $8,000. Right. But America loves discounts. We love the notion of getting a deal even when we're not getting a deal. I don't care what the discount is. I care what the price is. And those are two very different things. I love it. Well, David, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? I want to ask everybody to put healthcare first. One of the the, uh, the phenomenons that I describe is that we have Stockholm syndrome in this country with the insurance carriers. Think about it. The patient, they essentially look in their directory and said, "Hey, Mr. Insurance Company, who do you ordain me the permission to go see, and what is it going to cost me when I go there?" Now, when they get there, the doctor goes to the insurance company and says, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Insurance Company, what prescriptions can I prescribe and what treatments can I give and how much are you gonna pay me for doing it? The traditional broker says to the insurance company, what products and services can I provide my clients and how much are you gonna pay me for representing them? Which, another backwards, perverse incentive. So, let's stop putting health insurance first and let's start putting health care first. Let's ask questions like, hey doctor, I understand you just prescribed me this medication, but why did you prescribe it? How long do you expect me to be on it? What's the cost going to be? What's the plan for getting me off it? What kind of side effects can I expect? What other medications did you consider? 
for some reason, we put doctors on a pedestal in this country as though they're somehow better human beings, but they still put their pants on one leg at a time. They still have divorces and college tuition and probably their own debt, medical education debt they're still paying for. And so my ask for today is let's put healthcare first. Let's make the best healthcare decision we can. And once we know the path of healthcare, that's the best, the highest quality, lowest cost, then let's worry about how to pay for it. And if we did it in that order instead of the other way around, I think things would really start to change. Well, I think that is great stuff. That definitely gets it. Come on. Come on. David, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Uh, I would um, go on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. I put a lot of content, thought ideas, um, even you know some of the mistakes we've made along the way. I, I share it all. Um, and it'd be a great way to not only see some of what we're doing and what our clients are experiencing when we build a proper plan, uh, but also to get in touch with me as well. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show David your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Follow him on LinkedIn, and I will list that in the notes of the show. Thank you again, David. Thank you, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step-by-step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there you can just go to the website i'll also list that in the notes of the show what's up savage nation please support the show by subscribing leave us a review and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it come on